This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. So, it's my pleasure to welcome you to our second colloquium event of uh, the spring 2009 season. Uh, For those listening at home, I'm Henry Jenkins. I think everyone in the room knows who I am. Uh, Our speaker uh, today is Randy Testa, who I've met through our mutual involvement in the media literacy world, uh, met through the national organization. Uh, He's a vice president of education and professional development at Walden Media. Walden Media, which is based here in uh, here here in Boston, is the first is the film production company that produced adaptations of *Bridge from Terabithia*, *Charlotte's Web*, *Chronicles of Narnia*, uh, *Because of Winn Dixie*, *Holes*, on uh, in 2008 *Prince Caspian* and *Journey to the Center of the Earth*. *Band Slam* with Vanessa Hugh- Hudgens will open in July 2009. And Ramona, based on the Beverly Cleary book, is going to open in spring of 2010. He Testa holds his ed, ed, educational degrees from Harvard Graduate School of Education. Uh, he is the author of two books on the Amish community of Lanchester County, Pennsylvania, and the co-editor with Robert Coles of two literary anthologies, Growing Up Poor and A Life in Medicine, both published by the New, the new Press. Um, he's been an associate visiting professor at Dartmouth, where he headed the elementary teacher education program and taught courses on education through the arts and athletics. So uh, I'm delighted to have him speak to us today about some of the work that Walden is doing in terms of connecting media and literacy. Howdy. Thanks. Uh, I'll put this up at the end, um, and I just want to have you take a look at the mission statement right now. And this will be sort of like a test. At the end of this, you can see whether um, what I've talked about aligns with this. Our mission is to provide families. I'm reading because we have people at home, right? Our our mission is to provide families with programming that inspires, engages, enlightens, and entertains. We believe that quality entertainment is inherently educational and can capture our audience's imagination, rekindle curiosity, and demonstrate the rewards of knowledge and virtue. Um, so I want to talk about telling stories, um, and I'm thrilled to be here, and I want to just give you a little bit of my background, because sometimes um, when I talk to teachers, they ask me, how'd you get your job? And um, I was born and raised in Ohio, and I am of an age, and that's important because um, Ohio at one time led the nation in the number of drive-in movie theaters that it had, and I grew up with drive-in movie theaters. And this is my father's 1967 Ford Country Squire station wagon. Um, I come from an Italian Catholic family, and on Saturdays during the summertime, my father and mother would pile the f- uh, my four brothers and I in the Country Squire, and um, we would lie, And because at that time, if you were under 12, kids got in free. So um, three of my brothers, and well, we would lie and get in. We'd put the blankets up like this, um, and we would go to the drive-in movie theater. Um, and the drive-in movie theater, which is pretty much gone now, um, 
is a very interesting phenomenon with respect to family movies. Now, this is from an old newspaper, but in drive-in movies, the first movie usually was for kids, like Walt Disney's Moon Pilot. And then the next movie was for adults only. And that would be something like Where the Boys Are, that spicy movie. Um, you know, and you can see up here. But So what would happen is you'd go to the drive-in movie with your family, and then after the first movie, our parents would always say, okay, you guys, time for bed. I mean, duh, right? So um, we always got up on the top of the um, country squire um, on the luggage rack, and my older brother and I would sit up there with um, sleeping bags, and we would watch, and we'd get those, I think there's zinc, those big clunky speakers. We'd put another one up there, and we'd watch. And as a kid, um, I always thought the adult movies were a lot more interesting than the kid movies. And um, here are a couple of drive-in movie theaters still in operation. But the point being um, that people went to the movies as families. People participated in the media as a family. And I have this up here because uh, I went from, uh, well, I began my career teaching elementary school. And one of the most hilarious and terrifying moments in my own career was bringing a group of third graders to see Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D. Um, now, we had prepped. I'd showed them pictures of the creature that... There's a big zipper down the back so that I said, if this gets too scary, you can remember. And actually, a nice trivia thing is that um, the guy who played the creature from the Black Lagoon was the screenwriter on the TV series Flipper. Um, anyway, um, but I won't. So after weeks and weeks of preparation, we went to a um, revival movie theater in, in uh, Denver, the Ogden Movie Theater, which is still there. And um, the first time you see the creature, he comes out and he goes, and his hands come right out into the theater. Well, after weeks of preparation, the whole theater, as if somebody blew a whistle, they got up and they ran out the back doors. And we spent the next 15 minutes brokering whether uh, they were going to... So what we, what we opted, because they wanted to see the movie, but um, they all sat in each other's lap. And then that way, uh, they could get through it. So... I say that also because I'm going to come back to this. I found very early on in my own career teaching elementary school with then what were called dyslexic boys that movies, if you, if you read a book and you watched a movie or you watched a movie and then read a book around retention, interest, etc., etc., you were a lot, you and they were a lot better off because some kids need to see it, some kids need to hear it, some kids need to read it, and I'll talk more about that in a bit. All right. Um, everything is changing, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but let me just give you a quick overview by way of um, what people in my office call a sizzle reel of what we do. is a world of wonder, a world of imagination, a world of discovery. Close your eyes and keep your mind wide open. Enormously successful film franchises.
years, but this is the first time it has been done. It really felt exciting. Well, this is the largest set in the world. The massive sets played from one end to the next. Wildly popular bugs. Audiences of all ages. Walden collaborates with the most talented filmmakers in the industry, acclaimed directors, award-winning actors, and up-and-coming new talent. This formula has garnered widespread critical recognition. I want to thank Bill Ashton's who went right in his pocket and said, 35 million, go do it. Thank you. But Walden films go well beyond the movie theater. This must be the biggest classroom in the history of going to school. Each motion picture exists under an umbrella of fully developed, multifaceted programs that greatly enhance the audience experience. We're now talking with over 3,600 students and teachers across four time zones in 13 different locations. From the Charlotte's Web break-a-world record reading event, where over half a million people in the world participated in the largest read-aloud ever. Surprise! To Mr. McGordium's Wonder Emporium's Toys for Tots toy drive that raised over 14 tons of toys in one week. To the nationally televised Animal Planet Real Thinking event for Nims Island, hosted by the Emmy Award-winning Jeff Corwin. I gotta tell you, this is absolutely awesome. To the Chronicles of Narnia International Museum Exhibition that will be traveling 10 to 12 cities in five years. Through relationships with the country's top educational organizations, Walden's in-house educational experts formulate and distribute millions of curriculum-based educational guides to teachers, schools, libraries, after-school programs, and more. Walden Media is proud to present Bandit Slam, starring Vanessa Hudgens and Ali Mishalka. Let's start shredding! Tooth Fairy, starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Billy Crystal, and Julie Andrews. Ramona, based on the best-selling books by Beverly Cleary. And the third installment in the Narnia series, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There's nothing like previews. <laughs> um, anyway, um, everything is changing, and I'd like to talk a little bit about what it means to be making uh, family-friendly films. Um, this is uh, yours truly in Washington, D.C. Um, for um, the inauguration. We participated in something called the Children's Inaugural Ball 
Um, and you can see I have Aslan with me there. Um, the way we create, the way we consume, the way we learn about it, the way it's paid for, everything is changing right now. Um, people going to libraries are now checking out film and video. It's half of what people are going to libraries for. Um, these are old statistics, but again, um, we are a nation of uh, watchers. Um, other statistics showing that the average child will spend 15 years in front of a screen. Now, this is the way it's done, and this is changing. Um, this, is, this is the way a movie is typically sold up until recently. Um, with um, video on demand, et cetera, et cetera, um, there's lots of talk that that's the end of TV ads. Um, Word of mouth is now what drives the industry. This is, again, not new. Um, we can't get the Internet hookup in here because I would show you. Um, Saturday Night Live did a really wonderful thing for the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by way of a, vi a little video that it did called um, Lazy Sunday, which was <laughs> sent everywhere. My mother has it. Um, and uh, that kind of viral marketing and word of mouth, and again, you're with Henry, so you know about when people have an emotional connection to a piece and feel like they own it, they can consume it, and putting, and et cetera, that that's an act of consumption to pass that on. Um, now, um, we've gotten some really interesting data um, about where people are hearing about um, our films. Um, because we tend to do adaptations, of children's literature, um, there is a built-in fan base, if you will, um, around a number of these books. Um, Bridge to Terabithia being one. So um, in the opening weekend, again, you can read, but about two-thirds of who went were families, meaning as families, mom, dad, kids. Um, and children for this were the primary decision makers who said, we read that book in school. We, we know that book. We should go. All right, and um, and then this piece, which is really, um, if if we have a secret sauce, um, it's that um, we talk directly to teachers and librarians, again because we do do film adaptations, and I'll talk about that um, more specifically in a, in a little while. But um, by way of, for example, when we did um, Charlotte's Web two years ago, um, Jordan Kerner was the producer. Um, we spent about a half a year um, pre-screening the movie for um, state school library groups. Um, for example, in North Carolina, um, just before the screening, um, an, a librarian came up to me and she said, this is one of those books that should never have been made into a movie. And so I said, well, I'll tell you what, watch the movie. That's why, this is, that's why you can come here for free See what you think. If you hated it, tell everybody you know. Get out of Dodge. So um, after we showed the movie, um, I looked for this particular librarian, and I couldn't find her anywhere. And I thought she probably skulked out one of the side exits, you know, because people don't like to deliver bad news. It puts them on the spot. So <clears throat> I went down to the third row, and here sits this librarian sobbing. I mean, like, you know, blotchy red <laughs> kind of sobbing. And... Um, 
she said to me, I had forgotten what a, what a powerful story Charlotte's Web is. And I can tell you, the last half hour of that film is right out of the book, like this. And I'll talk about what that means in a little bit. Um, we did a little film called Amazing Grace, which is about William Wilberforce. Who? Most people don't know, more people know now, um, that Wilberforce was involved in the abolition of the slave trade in Great Britain. And um, we did, I mean, we did grassroots marketing. I carried a copy of the movie in my knapsack. We were like, we'd show it to anybody ahead of the release. I mean, you na- we, we were everywhere with the film. We did educators' guides. Um, we, we sold it literally by the seat of our pants. And um, it did really well. Again, here, this is just a little um, awareness survey. It's before movie, after movie. People now know, and a couple of states have talked about adopting within their um, um, social social studies standards statewide that there be around studies of either the Civil War or slavery that you really do have to go back to the beginning. So a couple of states are adopting and mandating that you um, have to also know something about who William Wilberforce was. Um, Wilberforce, we put this up here because Wilberforce actually founded the, um, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, um, which is today the ASPCA. All right, um, I'll just say this very quickly. Um, this is nothing new, but um, we are, my mother always used to say when, when, when one of us five sons were late, she'd say, you're the last of the Mohicans. And um, we are the last in realizing, number three in particular, that we are like this with our assets. We refuse to give them away. We want to charge a lot of money for everything. Um, and we are just beginning to realize that like that sign, if you know the movie, um, It's a Wonderful Life, after, um, after um, George Bailey's father dies, there's a shot where they show a picture of Mr. Bailey, and under him is a plaque that says, the only things you can take with you are the things you give away. And um, we're beginning to realize that, too that the more we give away, and again, I'll talk about that in, in you know. Um, this, uh, I'm not going to read that out loud. I'll just, you can, you know that one here. Um, there is really nothing worse than being kicked in the paradigm, and that's what's happening to Hollywood right now. Um, they don't like it. If you, saw, if you saw the bankers testifying yesterday, wasn't that fabulous? This seeing those guys just twist. Well, that's happening to, to that's Hollywood too in its own way. Just being asked to be accountable and to think about changing. All right, um, I'm going to shift now into this family film piece and this adaptation piece. Um, NEA.gov. If you want to have your hair stand up, you might want to read. Um, the NEA's 2004 report, Reading at Risk, and then the 2007 update called To Read or Not to Read, which basically says that um, we're reading less and less than ever before. Um, And as somebody who used to teach undergraduates, the most startling figure is that 18 to 24-year-olds were once the most likely group of people to be reading literature, and today they're the least likely. Um, We talked about this last, the bottom one, a couple minutes ago. Less than half the adult American population is now reading literature. 
Um, this, only slightly more than one-third of adult American males now read literature. I like to really rankle um, language arts teachers and reading teachers by saying, I have a secret theory, not so secret theory, that some of this has to do with the way reading is taught in elementary school to boys. Because by the time some boys learn to read, it's been such an effeminizing process, why would they want to? All right, look at these are. I kind of picked these on purpose. These are really old statistics by way of you, you big shots here at MIT. But I mean, who even has a VCR anymore? But the point being, this was 10 years ago. So you can look at how this has changed since then around um, uh, participation in electronic r r uh, media and a decline in, in reading literature. So here's the punchline. So what? Is this just some esoteric argument? Boo-hoo, nobody's reading War and Peace anymore. Well, actually, literary reading correlates with a number of measures that are thought to be very positive within communities. People that read literature are more inclined to perform volunteer and charity work. Again, this is from the NEA report, to visit art museums, to go to arts events. And speaking of the last election, to vote and to vote regularly and to know what the hell they're talking about. So, the accelerating declines in literacy um, are a matter of grave importance to teachers because at the current rate, says the NEA, within 50 years, reading literature as a leisure activity will have vanished from this country. It is literally good for a culture to have people who read Anna Karenin or The Bluest Eye. All right, so here's the big pitch. So after all that, you know, here's electronic media is Satan itself. We come up and we say, well, we're going to talk about enhancing literacy by way of electronic media. And um, sometimes people think we're crazy. This is a nice little 22 out of the top 50 movies of all time are based on books, graphic novels, or short stories. Um, these are a couple, a number of... Um, movie adaptations that we did. And this just shows you um, what's very exciting for teachers is that before, during, and after the release of a film, and I do have to say now that um, we have, for most of our films, that the Walden brand is attached to it, um, that before, during, and after the release of the film, book sales spike. Bridge to Terabithia, which was published in the late 70s, won a Newbery Award in, I think, 77 or 78, has kind of gone like this. It's taught in school. All of a sudden, um, word of the movie, and it goes like this. And um, so, too, with all these, each in their own way. And I just put that up there very quickly. So what does that mean? Well, it means that... And again, I'm going to use the word faithful as also a euphemism for good or quality or whatever. Um, the release of a film adaptation offers the, the larger culture to revisit a, a, a work and restate its literary merit. When the film Capote came out, just before Capote came out, if you saw that, um, I think that was Vintage did, and publishing has changed since then, but um, I think they published, it was either 150 or 300,000 
um, paperback copies of In Cold Blood, which sold in three weeks after the movie opened. And Capote isn't even really in cold blood. So um, an adaptation can introduce a whole new generation of readers to one of these literary works. Bridge to Terabithia in today's world is an oldie. My lord, it was published in 1978. Okay? Um, and this is always of interest to me, invites exploration of a work's significance in the world today across ages and sensibilities. Charlotte's Web came out um, at Christmas time, and Bridge to Terabithia came out the following February. And what had gone on in this country at that time was there was, um, you probably remember, there were shootings in Colorado in a one-room schoolhouse, and then um, Amish children were murdered in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. So the question, well, first of all, so that's the end of schools being a safe place. I mean, it's, that's over. I, it's over. And what does that mean? Well, so um, I spent that fall talking about both of those books, Bridge and Charlotte's Web, because both of those books explore the meaning of a safe place for children. Leslie and Jess create their own world. They say there has to be a place just for us. And sadly, school for them is not the safe place, if you know that book. And in Charlotte's Web, here's a test. Okay, MIT land. What's the opening line of Charlotte's Web? <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't go on. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, you can't look on. Oh, come on. See, this is the curse. This is the curse of electronic media. Where's Papa going with that axe? Speaking of safety, and, and, and she asks the question because she knows damn well where he's going with the axe, you see? So suddenly, there's this moment in the culture after just this awful stuff going on, and these two films, and these two films do what Lewis talked about the role of fantasy being, which is very in right now, and again, I'll talk about that. So anyway, when a movie is coming out, what a lot of teachers do is they say, okay, we're going to read the book and then we're going to see the movie or they're going to wait till it comes out on DVD. So we've done a whole campaign with the Narnia series called Read It Before You See It, which teachers really like, librarians really like. All right, so one of the things that happened with Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe is these kids, boys in particular, sidle into their libraries and they say, do you have any more books by that C.S. Lewis guy? Well, guess what? There's six more, right? So um, there's a kind of cultural moment that happens around the release of a, of a film. And after the release of a film, it's great to talk about books and movies as two different kinds of texts, a, liter um, a, 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 a written text and a visual text. That's really interesting for kids to talk about. All right. Um, there's all kinds of measures that talk about um, what happens when you use books and movies together judiciously. And the most important one is this phrase you hear a lot, life, lifelong readers of literature. Um, I'll spare you this. This is a tirade that I give to teachers um, where I ask, why, why do kids have to be reading on or above grade level? Why can't a sixth grader be reading Jumanji? Why can't a senior in high school in an honors English class, why can't they read Prince Caspian or whatever? This thing coming down the pike, I don't know if you know what lexiles are. Stay tuned. We're living in the final days. <laughs> um, 
the way reading is taught, the, the way reading can be taught, doesn't necessarily make lifelong readers. Here's a little study that talks about, I'm going to include that we're all lifelong readers. What do we do? Well, first of all, we have access to books, which in the land of No Child Left Behind, we call it No Child Left. That's a big deal. Second of all, they make their own choices about what to read. They don't have some teacher ramming a summer reading list down their throats at the end of the summer. They make their own choices about what they want to read. And they're encouraged to read above and below grade level as well as, and again, I'm using all those words in quotation marks. And speaking of movies, they reread their favorite books. Who reads a book once? A really good book. And I will tell you, here's a study for you. You will not find one public school in America where kids reread a book where you read Frog and Toad in the grade two and then reread it in the 11th grade. It does not happen. So I'm just putting this up there. This is a for-profit company. It's like the SAT. Everybody thinks the SAT is like it landed in a spaceship. This is for-profit stuff, right? So this is a, is a framework for teachers, supposedly, the Lexile measure of book, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so what happens now is books in libraries and in schools are beginning to be shelved, not by way of the Dewey Decimal System or something like that, but by their Lexile score. And in some schools, you can't read Charlotte's Web if, if you're one thing and the Lexile score says you're something else. You should get some teachers in here to talk about what this means for, anyway. So there's Charlotte, Charlotte's Web. Lexile score. So, I'm at a national conference, the National Conference of Teachers, National Council of Teachers of English. And when the movie comes out, we're giving away, um, we worked with the publisher, we gave away X number of copies of Charlotte's Web. So a teacher, a beginning teacher comes up to us and asks me, what grade level is this book appropriate for? Don't laugh. What a question. I know of a group, when the movie came out, a group of senior citizens on the South Shore in their monthly book club, they were reading Charlotte's Web. Can you, can you imagine the richness of that conversation? She was a true friend and a good writer. The book explores loyalty. So this question frightens me and makes me furious. We did a little thing, a stunt, if you will, a publicity stunt, shrill viral marketing, if you will. We said to kids, on a $7,000 budget, that's all we had for the website. It, our website crashed. I can't tell you how many times our website crashed. Um, we, said, we said, help us break the Guinness Book of World Records. You know who held the record before we did? Because we did break it. It was a group of school kids in England reading that wonderful poem memorialized on the Rocky and Bullwinkle show, Daffodils. <laughs> Remember? Remember? Yeah. Uh, 
uh, the thought of 123, anyway. So, um, so we said, look, um, help us break the world reading record. And there's, like Guinness is very strict. There's the number of words it has to be, the passage has to be. So um, we went to Charlotte's Web and we said, let's, um, let's have them read the passage from Charlotte's Web where Charlotte and Wilbur are introduced to one another for the first time. Um, because, among other reasons, the scene from the movie comes just plop right out of the book. It's like it was transposed. And I'd like to show you that. See, I'm of an age, in elementary school, we used to show everything on 16 millimeter, and every now and then you'd see the, the film break or there'd be like this big blob in the middle of the screen because the, 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 the film was melting. So that was the point where you stood up until the janitor came to fix the projector. You sang every song you knew, right? <laughs> this little light of mine. Anyway, all right, so here is, and you'll see, look at the format that this is in because we did... Um, we did an, uh, a pretty intense faith outreach with Charlotte's Web, and I'll talk about that as a component of this family-friendly movie stuff. So, I'll show you all three of these. is what the kids read. Okay, it's morning. Hmm. I guess I was dreaming, wasn't I? get up there. Whoever addressed me last night, kindly make yourself known. Good luck. An early riser, and he has things he needs to say. Yeah, loud things. I'm speaking to whoever spoke to me Salutations is just a fancy way of saying hello. Oh, 
seen the kids read. Um, interestingly, I'll just an anecdote about faith audiences. Um, just ahead of the movie's release, we had some people come um, and um, interview us, me, about <clears throat> what we do. And uh, we were talking about Charlotte's Web. And um, the interviewer referred to Charlotte's Web as um, rather dismissively as secular material. So I turned to him and I said, why don't you say that phrase again, only like hock into a garbage can before you say it. Like just go, <laughs> secular material. Because as I pointed out, and I want to show you now, um, this scene, and E.B. White uses the word miracle for what happens. as I reminded my uh, interviewer, I said to him, after they see the spider web that says some pig in it, where does Mr. Arable go? Because he goes in the book and he goes in the movie. Where does he go? He goes into town and he goes and speaks to the minister. And he says, this is a miracle in the biblical sense. So here we have over 500,000 kids, teachers, and whatnot helping us successfully break a world reading record. This is from the International Reading Association. and Basically, it says if you think that everything begins and ends with the word and phonics, boy, have you missed the boat. 
students must now be able to decode information from all types of media. So I'm going to come back to Charlotte's Web, and here's a trivia question. Who said this? An unliterary person may be defined as one who reads books only once. There is hope for someone who has never read Shakespeare's sonnet, but what can you do with someone who said they have read it and then thinks that settles the matter? And I'm speaking now, my frame of reference is Charlotte's Web. With a really good book, one can read it as a child in one way and then reread it in middle life and get something very different out of it. And that, to my mind, is one of the best tests. And again, we tend to have, um, we've got some data that says that entire families go to our movies. It isn't just the kids or mom. Um, and here's a book that came out that was reissued right after the movie was released. Um, this would be a great book in a children's literature course to examine. There's so much rich material. Um, E.B. White drove Garth Williams insane with sending him pictures ripped out of um, textbooks about what Charlotte should look like. And there's, the other thing is, E.B. White prefigured what we today call CGI animation 60 years ago. He said, well, if it were he wasn't opposed to it being made into a movie. He said, well, you'd have to have a kind of new animation. And he really wrote beautiful notes about what that is. And 60 years later, we're finally able to do what E.B. White prefigured. So we've just moved as a company into book publishing, into children's literature, because, um, well, and so the first book we did was a, um, a book about Jim Thorpe, um, which is floating around right now. You might see um, an HBO special on Jim Thorpe. What a story. What a story about American education. This is the Carlisle Indian School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Here are the students. Here's a movie. Look what I can tell you by putting this. We could talk for the rest of the afternoon about this picture. It's like Isadora Duncan said, if I could tell you what I meant, I wouldn't need to dance. This is a music class. Can you imagine? I like to tease kids. We did a movie called Holes, and Lewis Sacker, who wrote the book, wrote the screenplay. And I always say to teachers and kids, who's the character in the movie that doesn't appear in the book? And what do you make of that? Because the same guy wrote, because the whole thing, like, sometimes teachers think, well, the, the, the book, the book is, the book is the text. Whoa, 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 whoa. So this sort of breaks that frame and says, whoa, how do we do this? This is disgusting. And we use this. Um, I wanted to find the most disgusting cross-cut view of a worm because we did a really wonderful adaptation of a book called How to Eat Fried Worms. Now, if you're as old as I am, you know that pre-Harry Potter, the book for reluctant third-grade boys who just would not read was How to Eat Fried Worms. It's disgusting. They, these kids are these, they, they dare him to eat a worm a day for 15 days because he wants to get 50 bucks to buy a bicycle. Norman Rockwell's son, Thomas Rockwell, wrote the book. So you have to have, you, like, well, you have to just want to throw up when you see him finally eat that worm. And again, 
when the book came out, when the movie, ahead of the movie coming out, we found teachers all over the place, and it popped back up on the New York Times bestseller list. People said, kids are rediscovering how to eat fried worms, which is great, in my mind, in, the, in, the, in this vampire sort of world we're living in. Because here's, well, maybe that's another form of a vampire. Anyway, so there's how to eat fried worms. Was it? Um, we published a book called The White Giraffe. And most recently, we published a book called Savvy, which we found out a couple weeks ago won a Newbery Honor Award. So we're really thrilled about that. And Savvy has gone from our publishing arm straight into development. And that's kind of, that's one of the points of now working within children's literatures that you can bypass this sort of arcane system of having uh, books become movies. All right, teachers tend to avoid movies. Um, teachers go to the movies about four times a year. Um, junior high kids are watching anywhere like six to eight videos at home a week. Um, teachers, some of the dumbest people I've ever met are school heads, superintendents, um, who say that um, watching movies is not teaching. Pop and play. Teachers can sometimes be their own worst enemies. They put in a movie and they go down the hall. They grade papers. They make phone calls. Pop and play is not teaching. And then this fallacy, if they see the movie first, they won't read the book. That is baloney. We can't take the time in our school to show a movie. A teacher said to me, we're not allowed to show clips from Schindler's List because the superintendent of our district believes that um, Schindler's List is too upsetting for high school kids. Well, you tell him that if you're teaching the Holocaust and your students aren't regularly having nightmares, there's something the matter with your teaching. Who says this is supposed to be comfortable? We only make G and PG movies. We have a sort of shill sister division called Bristol Bay that handled Ray and Amazing Grace. Because if a movie isn't rated G or PG, teachers can't use it in school. They can't use the DVD. Um, and then this sad thing, teachers don't generally value film in their own lives. There are some amazing teaching. To be and to have, which was made with the permission of the French government, I mean the documentary, Etre et Avoir, one of the most luminescent films about teaching you'll ever see, opens with the shot of a turtle that's gotten out of its box. Spend three minutes watching this, the, the class pet go across the room. So we try to make movies that are faithful to the books they're adapted from. And the question then becomes, well, what does that mean? And for you, what is the difference between a literal adaptation and a faithful adaptation? Because they're not the same thing. I was on a panel with Lois Lowry. You probably read The Giver. Oh, let me just, this is the way books and movies tend to be taught in school. There's this kind of punitive medicinal thing that sort of creeps into the pedagogy. Lois Lowry, who wrote The Giver, said a faithful film adaptation is one that's true to the spirit of the book. So for you, is what is true, what does spirit mean in terms of this process? All right, so I'm going to end with just talking about C.S. Lewis, and then we'll take questions and stuff. So here's Clive Staples. And here's Narnia. Our first film, $745 million around the world. That's, that's a lot of money. 
Once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. They were sent away from London during the war because of the air raids. This is the opening line of The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. C.S. Lewis published this book in 1950, scarcely five years after the end of World War II, originally in Great Britain. Everybody in the UK knew what this statement meant. Sent away, London, air raids. This was the first time a children's book invoked enormity, the, the horror of what had just happened. Lewis was excoriated for writing Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. More on that in a second. How dare you talk about war in a children's book? This is a photo of children in uh, London, actually. As the children went out of London, the soldiers came in. These were posters like Uncle Sam Wants You that were all over the tube stations. It was your duty to send your children out of London. Isn't that something? Look at the look on this boy's face. And Lewis, though he swiped at um, Jung and Freud, was a really good psychologist because Lewis understood that the horror of the opening of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is not the bombing of London. It's being separated from your parents for children. That's the horror. So, for a modern audience, here, and I'm teasing at this whole business of a literal and a faithful adaptation, two lines become the first nine minutes of the movie. So you say, well, what would be a modern-day parallel? Well, when Lion Witch came out, it was just about five years after 9-11. There's one children's book. There's a picture book. Um, about a man, the, the movie, um, what is it called? Man on Wire, about the man who walked between Philippe. Anyway, there, there's a picture book of that by Mordecai Gerstein. Thanks. Um, now, in, an, in, an, in a kindergarten where the school was told, we're not going to talk about this. It's too scary. Here is a picture that emerges from a five-year-old, and here's a story that's dictated to a teacher. I mean, yes, in a classroom where children regularly dictate their own fantasy stories. Once an airplane was going too fast with people in it, then T-Rex came. He jumped up and down, and the airplane crashed into him, but he is much stronger. Then the people jump out on T-Rex's head, and he shakes the people off into the water because they can swim fast. Then they fall asleep, and their jackets are their pillows. This is a book written by Vivian Paley, who observes... A conversation now this is in a school where we don't talk about this. A conversation has begun through fantasy about the events of September 11th that will weave through the children's stories and fantasy play. Grown-ups may speak often of that terrible time and there will be repeated reports and replays on television, but the children must be able to imagine themselves swimming to safety and using their jackets as pillows. Why? Because children reconstruct the moral universe in fantasy and in play and in stories. Do you see? Children, little children always see themselves inside of a narrative. So, Lewis is excoriated. In writing before Vivian Paley, he says, fantasy is really important because it helps children make sense of reality in a way that what he called school stories do not and cannot. The first basal reading series I had in my classroom, the first story was called Eddie Gets a New Desk. Can you, no, I'm serious. I still have it. I saved it. Big whoop-de-doo. We're reading this story. It's my first year of teaching. The kids are reading. 
I look up at them, and they, they look like they're going to unzip their skin and run down the hall. And I said, do you like this story? And they looked at me, and they said, no, we thought you did. <laughs> that was the end of that. Fantasy presents situations to children exploring actions and their consequences in a larger epic context. Do you hear how this child has reworked the 9-11 story by having the children swim to safety using their, pillow, their jackets as pillows? That's what fantasy is. That's what story is. This is a drawing by a fifth grader. Making sense of reality, and look at this one. Making sense of reality through fantasy. He's a harp. Fifth grade. This, this is story. This is the power of fantasy in reconstructing and understanding reality. So Lewis goes on and on. He's excoriated, and he writes an essay called On Three Ways of Writing for Children. And he says, look, um, people think people worry about this kind of literature on two fronts. They think, first of all, we don't want to give kids phobias, you know, fear of elevators, all this kind of stuff, uh, disabling pathological fears. That's one concern people have. The second one is we must try to keep out of the child's mind the knowledge that he or she is born into a world of death, violence, wounds, etc. Lewis says, if they mean the first, I agree with him, but not if they mean the second. The second would be to give children escapism, a false impression. He's talking about the kind of dangerous escapism, a movie and a book like The Parent Trap, which falsely holds out to children the view that they can somehow reconcile their divorced parents. That's what Lewis is talking about. That's the kind of fantasy he wants to keep kids away from. So he says there's something ludicrous in the idea of educating a generation born into the KGB and the atomic bomb. Since it's so likely that they will meet cruel enemies, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage, or brave spiders, or children in a treehouse who, 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 who slay dragons. Let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. Otherwise, you're not making their destinies brighter but darker. That's quite a statement. This is his refutation. How dare you open this with the bombing of London? All right, so here's Narnia. I'll end with Narnia. Um, you may not know this, but the books take place within a very narrow time frame on Earth. Narnia time and Earth time are very different. And I put this up here because this is a really fun thing to work with kids on, is to have kids explain to you how this works. It's just because it, what's the answer? Who knows? And Aslan says in, in uh, Prince Caspian, things never happen in the same way twice. So too with the movie business. And I'll end here. Sometimes, Lewis said, stories may say best what's to be said, which is in one part why we've been able to build a brand and why we're reasonably successful in a downturned economy. I'll end there. Okay. Thank you. Yes. So we're ready for questions.
Yeah. I think it's really interesting that you're presenting to teachers that films are also text, and I think that's sort of a starting in, in the way that we, we think of things here too, is the internet is yep. text, and stories on the yep. internet are text, and Facebook yep. it might be text, yep. and stuff like that. Um, but you didn't mention anything about video games, so what do you, would it, Walden, do you have any thoughts on that? Or like well, we don't do them, so we. We don't do, okay. We, I mean, we haven't yet, so I don't really have, I'd be talking to you like this, because <laughs> I don't know. We, we've done movies. Okay. We do movies. But there's no, like, giving no. thought about it? Or no. Okay. Not now. <laughs> Think about it. Yeah. Okay. No, I mean, yeah. yeah. my advice. Yeah. No, I hear you. We've done some ancillary thing, uh, you know, but not, like. So you alluded several times in the presentation to the outreach to faith-based yes. communities. But you never really oh. dug into it. So okay. I'm wondering if you could say a little more about how they fit into your overall vision for, for this. Yeah, um, with our movie Amazing Grace, um, we really sort of came out of the gate and said, this is, a, uh, this, is, this is a movie for everybody, but this is a movie for faith audiences as well. And it really was the faith audience that really girded that and actually girded um, the first Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe film. Um, the first film was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. I mean, it really was everywhere. And... Um, we began to see that doing a kind of outreach to faith audiences um, was um, lucrative. Lucrative and in a, in, a, in a lot of ways sort of kept us honest. I mean, I was on the road and a parent said to me um, in a faith audience, um, why is a book that I can read to my five-year-old before I go to bed at night um, rated PG? It's a great question. And from a faith perspective, we're even more interesting. So, um, and this guy was a police officer. And I said, well, it's one thing to read something. It's another thing to see it in a great big movie theater, in a pitch black theater with X amount of sound. And the other thing I said to him was that something happens when you go from one to the other. But the other thing is, is that the, the story of good over evil is not necessarily a G-rated story. And the beauty of reading to a five-year-old is you can stop, you can skip parts. Um, but we, um, we have done, for Charlotte's Web, we, do, we did two faith educator guides. The little clip that I showed you um, comes from something that we distributed um, in churches. We had something called Amazing Grace Sunday ahead of the release of the film where um, I can't remember how many thousands of people sang Amazing Grace as um, a hymn in, in church. <laughs> Um, let's see, what else have we done? Um, it's an audience, it's a, very, it's a very faithful audience, to use that word. Um, and they know what they like and they know what they don't like. And it's, um, it's a tightrope. Yeah, I can imagine there's a tightrope between balancing between librarians and school teachers who work within institutions that have a clear secular goal yes. of separation of church and state and with faith-based ministers who, for whom the spreading of the gospel was a central objective. One of the, um, in Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, one scene of great controversy before the film was released was the stone table scene. Do you know it? Um, we nearly got a PG-13 rating um, for the film. Um, one of the things that was done was you don't actually see blood. You don't see a certain kind of violence. But the stone table scene um, plays out. Um, it plays out, and some people felt it was really overdone. Um, 
but, but in an era of the Passion of the Christ, which just redefined faith outreach for all studios. Every studio has a faith outreach branch now, some better than others. But um, that was something. And again, as part of that branding and as part of you let people know that that's the kind of thing that you're trying to do on a good day because that, that bonds your audience with the property and with you as a company. When, um, I don't know, I remember when um, The Golden Compass came out, Philip Pullman talked about um, his, within a context of, of, of sort of being anti-C.S. Lewis or the, the, the antidote to C.S. Lewis, well, first of all, whoever his publicist was should just be hung. Because, I mean, I remember I was at a screening of Amazing Grace when it came out on DVD, and a woman asked me in central Pennsylvania, what do you think of that atheist movie? <laughs> well, it's dead. What I said to her was, that movie is dead in the water. It's already, they, they should go direct to DVD. Because, again, the kind of the word and the buzz and the word of mouth on the street and the way that happens around a film and the way it happens for a faith audience through churches is, is really, really interesting and very, very important to pay attention to. Yes? So first of all, I want to I want to make really clear that I'm not trying to attack you in this because I think yep. that it's really cool that you're you yep. know that you are doing outreach to uh, Christian audiences, which I think is probably what you mean when you say faith, um, generally speaking. Um, and I was just wondering whether you felt like uh, you talk about walking a tightrope. Is there? How do you feel about putting on things that are pretty explicitly? I mean, they're explicitly Christian. I think I, I think it would be hard to argue that C.S. Lewis wasn't. Um, and marketing that to a public school audience as well as to a faith-based audience. I think it's important these films get made, but you're clearly, almost all of your films that, that I've seen here have a basically Christian message. And I'm wondering whether that ever you know, causes some debate about how far you can push the outreach to educators. Well, I disagree with you that there's an explicit Christian message, um, so I'll disagree with that okay. respectfully. Um, the thing is, like with Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, after a screening, a woman came up to me and she said, as a Muslim, I must tell you, this is a profound experience for me. Mm -hmm. So, and when um, Madeline Lengel wrote A Wrinkle in Time, if, do you know the book? Mm -hmm. Well, the three, the, the three witches, Mrs. Witch, Mrs. Watson, and Mrs. Who, are stars, we find out at first. And later on, we find out they talk about <laughs> saints. God help us in a secular novel. They talk mm -hmm. about saints. Well, you can read, you can read a Wrinkle in Time, and you can know all that or not. Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. You can, you can know what what some people think C.S. Lewis was up to, but actually, if you read C.S. Lewis's own commentary on his book, he's a very crafty guy because he says, I, "Well, anyway, that's a whole other." But um, I mean, C.S. Lewis did have a of course, of course, but you don't right. Right, but, like, but you don't have to know that to appreciate line. You don't have to know that the stone table scene is what Christians ascribed. So the question is, how is the meaning ascribed to a work like this? And who gets to ascribe the meaning, right? Well, that's the beauty of story, is if you do good stories, and if you're reasonably faithful, and I'm using it faithful as in true to the spirit of the book, you have something that people can take or leave. I mean, Ray. In the film, yes. What is the best thing Margaret White told us? Good. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well. I mean, the Margaret White made the 
Well, but that doesn't even matter. I'm talking about the viral marketing and what, what is people's perception and relationship to a property or a product, if you will. It doesn't matter that it's a good book necessarily. What matters is that he was stupid and in public he talked about where people are devotees. I mean, again, let's be shrill because what Philip Pullman wants more than anything is to have people go to his movie and buy his book and appeal to a broad base so, so again, you talk about, and again, we, find, we found ourselves with Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe dragged into a culture war we didn't want any part of for just these reasons. I mean, I spent a year on the road trying to say what, what you take out of it depends on who you are. It's, it's, uh, it's schema theory, if you will, in reading, right? Here's a schema. The more schema you're familiar with, I start to say to you, once upon a time there were, and you already know, ah, and in your head this spreadsheet fills out. You see? So uh, it's, it's the best part of my job is having these debates about what these stories are. Because as we saw here, it's a very powerful medium. Let me show you something. Just show one quick other one. This is um, Bridge to Terabithia, as you probably know, is one of the most frequently banned book in, books in public schools. In public schools. Public schools. We did it, and we did it knowing that. It usually ranks number seven on the 2006, seven out of ten, so it's right up there. So, We had huge debates about the scene that you're about to see, and we opted to leave it in.
closely? You have to believe it, and you hate it. I don't have to believe it, and I think it's beautiful. You gotta believe the Bible, Leslie. Why? Because if you don't believe in the Bible, God will damn it to hell when you die. Wow, Mabel. Where'd you hear that? That's right, huh, Jeff? God damns it to hell if you don't believe in the Bible. I think so. Well, I don't think so. I seriously do not think God goes around damning people to hell. He's too busy writing all this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> actually, watching that scene made me um, think of something I've been thinking about throughout this. Is that I, you know, heard you use the word faith and the word Christian has come up a few times. But what we just saw in that scene was few, I haven't used the word Christian. Okay, has come up. Yes. Um, um, if that that scene showed two different versions of. Christianity as I was exposed to it as a, a non-Christian growing up. So, um, and, and then, and so I was wondering throughout thinking about the celebration of the inner life of children and the celebration of, of fantasy life and, and of, of um, having really rich internal worlds that are in yeah. some ways independent from adults, in certain versions of or certain faiths that may or may not be viewed with as much pleasure as it may be viewed with others. So I was curious if you think that there's a particular theology or a particular faith. This that is the curse of graduate school audiences. Oh, no. <laughs> no, it is, because you can't stay with the story. No, I'm, cur I'm no, really I know. curious. I, I know you my, are. But <laughs> my point is, is, this is a piece, this is a book written for, this is a book written for fifth graders. Mm -hmm. This is a book that's published in 1978, and it's the first time a piece of children's literature wins a Newbery Award, and a group of children sitting in the back of a truck after going... Leslie has never been to church, and they move out into the country. So Jess invites Leslie to come to church. So afterwards, these children have a conversation about what happens when you die. So the reason why I asked that is But listen, okay. to the dif listen to the difference in your voice and in my voice. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, well, I, so, so what I noticed that you paused at the end of that, and it felt like, and you mentioned that it was being, as being a, something that was debated over and questioned internally um, at Walden. And so obviously that's sort of a moment of, of a moment that's really rich and really important to you, but also, and, and really powerful for, for me watching it and for young people watching it. So I'm wondering, since it does seem to be a, a point of controversy, can you talk a little bit more about where that controversy comes from internally from the perspective of, of as a media maker? Yeah, go to Catherine Patterson's website. Mm -hmm. Right now? Well, no, but I mean, <laughs> that would be rude, but after class, go yeah. and read what Catherine Patterson has to say about that mm -hmm. scene and this book. Mm -hmm. Um, because this is about telling a story, and we picked that story. Yes, we made a decision about that. Mm -hmm. One of the decisions around this is that this is widely read in school, and it has a built-in fan base mm -hmm. to be, again, 
Second of all, it's a Newbery winner. We, we, David Patterson wrote the screenplay based on his mother's, so who better? So all of those things weigh in there. But with this scene and, and this discussion, and if you, do you know the book? I, I, apparently, I don't remember as well as I Well, no, no, because like. you, can't, you, can't, you can't tell this story without this mm -hmm. scene. I mean, and people would have us because Leslie, as you remember, drowns. She drowns in the river. Well, she drowns and they swing across to Terabithia, across this river, and then she drowns. And Jess is taken right back to this scene in the truck. And Jess can't figure out, first of all, he, this is again the first time in a children's book uh, a peer dies. This is the first time a book does um, um, a relationship between a boy and a girl that's not sexual. These are, and I'm speaking to you now about the decisions that we made around picking, picking this. But, but in terms of the integrity of the story, this is the big, this, this is the power and the controversy of the piece. I had a father write me after the movie opened and he said, I saw the trailer for this film and imagine my horror when on the way home, my children, and he was talking about that scene, asked me, my horror, he used the word horror, what does happen to us after we die? So I wrote him back and I said, can you not, oh, can you not see that if your children don't ask you that, who are they going to ask? And, and so this business of telling, and again, I'll go back to lifelong readership. These children's stories, these children's stories are, are just fraught with big people notions. And, and that's the kind of story now, fried, how to eat fried worms is hardly that. Um, but this is the kind, and I get excited about this because this is, this is the, the, the meat and potatoes of the company, is to put out a story. In Ramona, here we go. How many people read Ramona when they were kids? Oh my God, Ramona Quimby, Henry Huggins. Well, in Ramona, and her, and her, we're using um, five of the books. And in, 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 in our Ramona script, which is an amalgam of five books, Ramona's father loses her job. That's right out of the book. Beverly Cleary had the guts to write about that decades ago. And here it is. And Ramona, being a child, she has this whole fantasy life about how she's going to rescue her family by becoming the peanut, girl, peanut butter girl, who, although not today, but um, she's going to be, she's going to go into commercial television and she's going to make a million dollars and she has a big rescue family, which just goes kaplooey and is very funny. But you see, again, that's a really scary thing. And the way Ramona finds out that her father's been laid off is the way kids find out the big things in life. She overhears her parents arguing. So I'm just going to ask quickly. Yeah, 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 yeah thanks. How do, you, how, how do you, I'm really curious how you see that relating to faith and whether or not it resonates with a particular kind of faith more so than others. I, uh, the anecdotal evidence that we get suggests mm -hmm. otherwise. I mean, by way of letters that we get and who screens our movies, who asks us after release, mm -hmm. can they do a screen? Um, again, faith-based audiences, it's, 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 it's tough and it's fascinating and it's really interesting because you do, you have to just walk a tightrope. 
So pull us back into the world of education, out of the yeah, world yeah. of religion. Um, what, what's, what are sort of pedagogical approaches you're recommending to teachers and in, in inter intersecting a film, these films into the, into the classroom? Here's um, an example. Um, Line Witch in the Wardrobe did so well that we were able, by way of the budget, to do three educator guides. And before the DVD came out, we did, we did a DVD sampler where we did eight scenes from the movie um, and an ad guide. And I can... Um, so in... You know how people have read or seen Lion Witch? Okay. Um, Edmund betrays his brothers and sister, his brother and sisters, for um, Turkish delight. So um, let me just a very short clip, and then I'll read you what the Ed Guide says, or what we would hope teachers would do, kids. So the first thing is, notice the format of after this crap. So here's a real simple menu. So you can go right to the scene you want to go to. And I want to go to Edmund is Forgiven. What's done is done. There is no need to speak to Edmund about what is past. So in the end guide, there's a synopsis of the scene. There's a, um, the pages from the novel that this scene takes place in are referenced. Um, 
the, the national standards that this, that this activity um, meets in social studies and in um, English language arts are listed. Um, the materials required, I mean, this is pretty standard stuff. Um, read aloud with students the chapter and then view this clip. Um, invite students to imagine what Aslan might say and what Aslan might say in response. Because in the novel, it points out here, um, the narrator, who I think is Lewis, starts to describe what Aslan says to Edmund and then stops. And in his narrative, he says, I, can't, I could even begin to explain to you. So one of the questions we ask is, we ask teachers to ask kids to think about is, what do you imagine that Aslan said to Edmund? Because the novel says, never before had Edmund heard such words, never before would he hear such words again. So we ask, why does C.S. Lewis not tell us that? Because he tells us a lot. And why in the film do we not hear what Aslan says to Edmund? And then the last question we do, we ask is, what does it mean to betray someone and what does it mean to forgive someone? Brave knights and heroic courage. So one of the things we've been working on on new media literacies is the idea of introducing fan fiction as a mode in the classroom to get kids to reflect and go beyond right. the story that's presented. It seems like the exercise you just described is one where kids are being invited to write a missing scene or to imagine right. a scene that's not actually represented directly, which right. is a sort of step toward fan fiction as a mode of responding to literature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Teachers don't know a lot about, um, and these these, this format might look really simplistic to you, but um, if you go to a state or a regional teacher conference, it's really um, extraordinary to see um, what teachers can and can't do with media. Yeah? I was actually just going to follow up on that and ask you what your uh, policies are about fan creativity and fan works because I've, I mean, I've never heard of you guys, uh, you know, sort of coming into a fan creative space and and throwing your weight around. But it's interesting to know if you guys have any established policies about them. Well, no, and with um, thank you with Band Slam, um, I I think I had up there that um, we're the last of the Mohicans to realize that the more we give away, the better off we're going to be. Um, for Band Slam, um, one of the things we're going to do is um, do all kinds of stuff with mashups and getting kids to take. Um, uh, there's a scene from the film where the kids play together for the first time and they're really awful. And Will comes in and um, gives them some advice about, you know, bring the drums up, do this, do that. So we want to put a couple of scenes out there really early on and encourage kids to do mashups with them to um, do all kinds of reconfiguring around that. But again, that might not seem like a lot here, but, but, but it's a huge deal. And we're like, oh, because we just, you know, we just, we haven't, and Hollywood has been late to, we're starting to do things like Comic-Con just ended um, last year. For, yeah, New York, excuse me. Um, last year at uh, Comic-Con Out West, we rented a train car, and we took um, the press on a, a junket for City of Ember. Um, that's the kind of stuff we find ourselves doing more and more and more of. Um. Yeah, just as a follow-up, I want to say, you know, I mean, I understand that with children's series, it's always a very touchy thing to deal with uh, 
you know, to deal with any kind of fan creativity. So, um, I don't know, encouragement on that. Yeah, yeah, I know. Be brave whatever Believe me, you're speaking create, and preaching you know? the choir here. Um, yeah, it's, uh, we'd, we'd love to do a lot more. We partnered with the Grammy Museum, and we get into a whole thing then, too, which is just um, about uh, song lyrics and music and Napster, I mean, all kinds of what are the criteria that you use to select new properties for development? Um, it goes back to the mission statement. We, um, and we've been at it for so long now, we'll, it's almost like by osmosis we'll say, well, this isn't really a Walden movie. Um, we'll pass on things. Um, let's see, what can I tell you that we passed on? I mean, there are there are there are really wonderful children's authors like Laurie Hall Anderson, who I really love. But we we couldn't do, we wouldn't do a film based on one of her books, because we well because if there's um, we can't get into things like rape. We can't do a PG thirteen film in the brand. So um, anything that that involves, we can't do. We won't do. Um, now, by the same token, our sister company did Ray. Ray was PG-13. Ray's got some pretty intense stuff in it. So again, that's one way that we keep the brand family-friendly. As a follow-up to that, have you considered looking to other cultures for um, stories that still share the same kind of uh, you know, common ideals between multiple religions that could then be used as bridges to start conversations? And not as much as we should be. We, I mean, again, I... It would be difficult for me to impart to you what a, a Sisyphusian, is that a word? <laughs> um, um, it is to um, be kicked in the paradigm in Los Angeles. It's a slow crawl. So you're uh, talking about the film financing as well? Um, I finance, I, I, I don't know anything of it, and I don't want to know anything. But um, um, no, it's... it's um, recent example of something nothing comes to mind offhand but I'll I'll follow up but um and again well to speak of money I mean things are dear right now right now things are very dear and so um one of the things we've done a movie um you saw uh, it's called Tooth Fairy with the rock and it's he's he's this um hockey player and he's they call him the Tooth Fairy because he's known for playing um, too rough and knocking people's front teeth out. So um, he dissuades one of his children around the idea that if they put their tooth under the pillow. And so his punishment, he wakes up in this fantasy world, and he has to be the Tooth Fairy. And he's, there's the rock, you know, six foot whatever, and he's in a tutu, and he's got these big wings. And, um, and so now we've not, done, we've not done anything that's just sort of straight out... Um, um, Entertainmenty like that. I mean, again, we've done adaptations, um, but we're moving into that. Um, that's an example of something that we haven't done before. Um, Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium. I don't know if you saw. Um, there was tremendous internal debate about. It didn't do very well for us. Um, and um, there was a feeling among some of us that a Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium was really a, a movie for adults about childhood, about the loss of childhood. I mean, we rolled it out as a, as a family movie, and it didn't do very well. And so, again, finding this line, what is a family-friendly movie? What happens if we go over here? Are we going to get burned? 
Um, is this going to be profitable? Um, there's some feeling that um, movies that are rated G aren't going to do as well as a movie that's rated PG. So you have to fight off having things inserted into a film in the 11th hour just to get a PG rating. Farts. <laughs> mm. Yeah? I'm a bit curious about, I mean, there's, I can see there's a lot of really amazing things that bringing, bringing fantasy and stories with these um, dark and really important elements to them Dark and uh, dark and light elements into the classroom and creating a, a place to talk about them. But for me growing up and reading fantasy above and below and outside the grade level, um, one of the things that was really important was that it was a place away from school and outside right. of, of a lot of the, insti right. the institutions. And I'm, I'm curious if, if that's something that ever comes up or if, if you think maybe there's not a way in the business model to capture all of that, but that's something you, you, that either you guys think about, or you personally, since you clearly put a lot of thought into it, that some, sometimes having something that you're not talking to your teachers about is, is an important element of this. Oh, yeah. And there are movies that we won't roll out with this kind of educational component. Tooth Fairy. Um, <clears throat> where we're just, and again, that's new for us. And so some of us are having, like, maybe teething pangs or something, but Tooth Fairy is just silly, fun, fun movie. Watch it, lights come up, go home. But is that only because it's, it's less serious, or do you think that there's something in, even in the, the ones that bring serious questions that somehow um, your mentors couldn't talk to you about or that you, you couldn't have a conversation with your parents about? I mean, maybe this is just the way I approached it. I don't know, but it seems like that's an important element of fantasy, and that I'm worried. Right. I'm worried if we we try to do everything like this, that um, that there wouldn't be that space to. Well, I've show you an example of a school. I mean, and I can tell you the name of the school, but I won't. Where it was, I was teaching at the time um, uh, in in uh, the Hamptons. I was in a school that prided itself on its cultural history curriculum. The first thing we did during a 9-11 was we turned off the televisions. People said, well, this is too upsetting. We said, well, I know. This is for a school grades 6 through 12. So anyway, my point is, so here you have this. I show you stories and drawings by five-year-olds where school has said it's like the reverse of your question, and it's happening anyway. So um, hopefully you're going to tell a story that's rich and deep enough that Again, that people can come at it, they can be left alone. And I agree with you. I, um, I think there are books that are read in school that um, shouldn't be read in school, books that, um, that, that the teachers should just say, here, read this, and then when they're done, just shut it and go home. I mean, instead of, we tend to overteach as, as a group. So um, again, these are, we don't have it all figured out right now. This is, I, there's, a, there's a card you can buy in Harvard Square, and it shows um, a man on a tightrope, and he's on a unicycle. And instead of, like, wheeling across the, the he's um, letting the rope out as he goes. And he's, he's cycling as he lets the rope out. And that's what this is like. Because there's, we really, in large measure, are operating without a frame, for better and for worse. So the prescriptives that, um, that maybe you or we want to have in place don't exist yet. Some do, but they're tacit and they haven't been made explicit. It's 
I wanted to roll back a little bit earlier to something that you said about teaching reading and popular methods being a feminizing yeah. process. And you could talk more about that or also talk about how other approaches might have different gender implications. Yeah, I mean, um, let's see. Um, School in this country is more elementary school. Different things happen in junior high, but basically I'll generalize. Elementary school is pretty user-friendly for girls and not so for boys. Boys' brains have all kinds of things happen. Boys' brains develop sort of like this. So um, around certain activities, I mean, here, I'll show you in a nutshell. This is, this is my pantomime of elementary school. Kindergarten, I used to work with student teachers. You have kindergarten, and I don't know why, but every kindergarten would-be teacher is taught that they have to do this whole thing where they sit in a circle at the start of the day, they ask, what's the weather, what's this, how many more days till the end of the year, you know, na 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 So <clears throat> every day in school, here sit 23 children, maybe half and half boys, girls. So in kindergarten, this goes on for about two minutes, and then two little boys start doing this, and the teacher starts saying, okay, stop it, stop it. And the kid keeps doing it because the boy is not used to sitting. Whereas in fantasy, girls tend to incorporate table activities into their fantasy play more. Again, and I'm generalizing. In fantasy play. So here you have a kid who then the next thing that happens is the IEP police come in and they put this kid on a special program because he, quote, can't sit still. And this is directly connected to reading because the way reading is taught, you have to sit still. Well, maybe, maybe you can't sit still, and a lot of us couldn't sit still. So it just goes from there. It goes to, um, it goes right out from there. And um, it's sad. So around, I mean, I'm not gonna, I can't offer a prescriptive for um, teaching reading, but other than to say um, that starting with stories, if you wanna read a great book about teaching reading, um, it's um, Sylvia Ashton Warner's books, Teacher or Spinster, where she taught in New Zealand with kids that just that the British government had given up on. And what she did was she asked them to dictate stories to her, like Vivian Paley has. Because every, every, every child, every five-year-old boy can tell you a story. Girls, too. And that's the way she then, the vocabulary really came from the children, from their interests. And so she got in trouble with the government because she had stories, kids um, dictated stories about their parents being drunk, their father hitting their mother. She just took it all down because that was what they knew. Well, you start doing it again, it's, you're going to get kicked in the paradigm because that's not the way reading is taught. We do, Eddie gets a new desk. Yeah. as bringing people together, bringing families together. Um, and then you talked about the work you did with the Charlotte, Charlotte's Web Readathon. And you mentioned something earlier about something bringing people together for Band Slam. Um, my question's kind of around the idea of group collaboration around kind of the launch of movies uh, and the idea of 
collaborative play and gaming around? We haven't. We haven't come there. But you, you said you're doing something new well, with Well, we, we have something called Real Thinking. Um, movie theaters sit basically vacant between Monday and Thursday. Here are all these properties all over the country. Then they sit there. You know, the little old ladies come to the 1 o'clock matinee, and they get, you know, free popcorn or something. But they're not widely used. People go to the movies in this country on, on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So, again, out of a – we said, well, look at – because um, Phil Anschutz, who's the founder uh, owner of our company, owns Regal Theaters. So we said, well, here, could we think about these as, as, as classroom spaces? And what would that look like? Well, so we did, you saw Katie Quirk just briefly. We did this, we have done this thing, and we're going to do it for Bandslam called Real Thinking, where you have kids in movie theaters across the country, and you're doing a simulcast. Um, we did one for Holes. We did a whole writing workshop, and we had the cast from the movie appearing on the screen and kids could call in and they could ask questions. You had Lewis Sacker, the author, talking about what it was like to adapt his book into a screenplay. And the whole point of it was then to do some specific writing activities with kids. So we had, um, we worked with, um, it's not the National so uh, Educational Assessment, but um, a, a writing organization, and I can't think of it right now, but we did a series of what are called turn and talks, where um, kids have to figure out something um, right there, and then they have to write about it, then they have to I mean, blah, 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 do all this stuff. So we found, we had for um, the first real thinking thing that we did with Holes, we had 21,000 kids in four different time zones in movie theaters. They paid to come. I think they paid six bucks. They got a curriculum beforehand that they worked on so that they didn't just wander in. We, they did some activities before, during, and after the real thinking event. So now for Band Slam, um, we partnered on Band Slam. I have the trailer for that. I should show you that before we because um, it's, it's funny. Um, for Band Slam, which is about this kind of nerdy kid in high school who um, is into indie music and forms a rock band in a school where they're just obsessed in New Jersey, the land of Bruce. Um, and anyway, so for Band Slam, um, we're, we partnered with the Grammy Museum because the Grammy Museum also is owned by the Anschutz Entertainment Group. Um, so there's, you know, there's an in-house thing. But also... Um, um, they have just extraordinary music curriculum. And so um, I just was on a long phone call yesterday talking about, well, what is the content going to be? How are we going to make use of the story band slam, the talent from band slam, the music in band slam, which has everything from – this isn't giving anything away, but the, in, in the movie, um, this kid writes letters to David Bowie. It's really sweet. And his ringtone is ch-ch-changes. And um, at the end of the movie, David Bowie – Something wonderful happens. I can't tell. <laughs> um, so, um, so we're trying to capitalize on that, all that. We're, we're, we're in a bad and a good way. We're running up against things like you know, music, lyrics, rights, da -da 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 -da. and again, we want to really. So I keep trying to think in the abstract about what would this curriculum look like and what would be the mode of participation. So, if you're at the Grammy Museum, you're um, in Nashville um, at the Ryman Theater. Because that's another thing. We want to put kids in these really cool places to hear music, right? Or to think about music. That in itself is just a morass. Um, you know, the Grammy Museum might not want to talk to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because they have overlapping interests. So we're really trying to figure this out. And again, we're going like this because we don't, um, we keep saying, well, this would be fun. And then the money people say, are you crazy? That's going to cost. Um, but we're working on something. And I can tell you more about that come after Memorial Day weekend, because that's what I'll dive into when 
on Monday, is to how to make an interactive experience that isn't just watching a movie screen and texting. I mean, what would that be? Because we've gotten a little bit better at the technology. Does that answer your question? Okay. That's as close as we can. So I, I, I fear I may be waving rope at the house of a hangman, but I wanted to ask you about <laughs> Disney and Narnia. And you know, Disney seems has sort of announced that it's pulling out of the series, and I'm wondering what the repercussion of that are for Walden, and uh, how you, how whether that's one of those kicks in the paradigm that are leading you to some new thinking. Yeah, um, we just found out it was in Variety, so I'm allowed to talk about this. But um, Fox is going to pick it up, and we have a distributorship with Fox, anyhow, and so um, and Fox is going to fast track it. Um, one of the one of the painful things that we learned with um, Prince Caspian, there was a review in the, or uh, uh, an editorial in the Times just around Christmas time that said, if it's Christmas, it must be Narnia. Lots of people re re rediscover the Narnia books around Christmas time. Well, we moved the release of Prince Caspian from Christmas to Memorial Day weekend, and we got smoked. <laughs> we got smoked. Um, um, in the in Indiana Jones movie came out. I mean, we just got taken apart. So, um, so the second Narnia film cost twice as much to make and made half as much. So Disney said, we're out. They've got a real intense bottom line. So that was it for that. So um, we all kind of said, okay, um, this is it. Because this is, Narnia has been very good to us. My, the furniture in my house comes from my bonus. <laughs> um, and so, um, uh, it just kind of floated. We had a couple of offers, nothing really substantial, and then we found out within the last two weeks that um, Fox wants to pick it up, and um, we're going to do it with them for a Christmas 10 release, holiday 10. We got burned when we said, um, for Charlotte's Web, speaking of marketing, we said Charlotte's Web opening Christmas 2005. We quickly pulled that back because we heard from people. We heard from a number of people, Jewish people, who said, wait a minute. So we're, the budget is, um, the budget has been cut, that's the last thing. So we're going to do a much leaner and meaner. So instead of the first movies were filmed in Yugoslavia and New Zealand and Cucamonga and this one, in fact, um, this will be interesting. We were supposed to film in Mexico, film the whole thing in Mexico. But we can't film in Mexico because of what's going on there right now. It's just not very safe. We have a um, this the set for Titanic is actually in Mexico, if you can believe such a thing. It's this big tank, and we need a tank because Don Treader's on a boat, so um, we can't go there right now. So that's been a that we'll see what that's going to do because that was supposed to be a cost-cutting measure. Any remaining questions? Can I, I want to, can I ask yeah, you, or I would just say, my snarky comment to you, but like hang out in a kid, like hang out in kindergarten and watch how story comes to be. Watch little children in their own fantasy play for this, this highfalutin snotty stuff that we call media. I tell all the, we do, and by the way, we have interns, we do internship programs, so if you're interested um, for summer, we take one of these forms and fill out an application. For grad students, we ask that you have teaching experience because we do, do we write a lot of curriculum. But um, 
I tell these, we get these, we get these undergraduate hustlers in from Emory, I shouldn't say this, but they come in and they're like, you know, they're all ready to like analyze, like, oh man, you know, the last, this movie would, <laughs> stop. If you want to really learn about the movies, first of all, read a lot of plays, be involved in productions so that you can see like frame by frame how something happens, how the whole thing comes together. Watch children in audiences, go to movies, like go with friends so people don't think you, you know, you're a stalker or something. But I spend a lot of time going to movies um, out in Braintree. I'll go with a couple of friends. One of my all-time favorite Narnia is there was a, um, right after the movie Lion Witch opened, there was a, a Cub Scout group of like 30 little, you know Cub Scouts? I used to teach third grade. That's like Cub Scout land. So in walk these, here this comes back to this boy thing again. Here come Cub Scouts. These are children. They're like puppies. They're not able to like modulate certain behaviors. So they come in and they've got candy. They're getting up and down and then all this poking and stuff goes on. Then the movie opens and the movie opens with the bombing of London and Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe is two hours and 20 minutes long. That's long for a movie and that's really long for a children's movie. Most of the children's movies are 90 minutes. So this is a long movie. I'm sitting behind him with two friends of mine. These kids, nobody gets up for two hours to pee to get candy, nobody moves. So I go back to the office and I say, I don't know what the reviews are saying, but we have us a hit on our hands. <laughs> and, and that's, it's really fun to, um, I'll, one prominent university within the Boston area, which has a technology program, none of the people have taught. They've not worked with little children. So it's kind of, it's, it's really frustrating to talk about the way children see themselves always inside of a narrative if people don't know what that means. So that would be, and, and, and keep reading a lot of children's literature. Because something happens if you, if you can't take yourself seriously, if you're reading Curious George Goes to the Hospital, you have that in your bag, try reading that on the tea in the morning and watch what happens to the people around you. They'll go, yo! Because it's very serious business, and it isn't too. Do you want to share that preview? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Band slam. Yes.
this new guy arrived. What's your name? The five is silent. Oh, How big is this whole band slam thing? Texas high school football thing. And he was a little different too. Oh, I'm sorry. We kind of had a good thing going. Friends don't have those. Me neither. Maybe we could not have friends together. Until this girl, Charlotte, she's got her own Wikipedia page. Nice to meet you. I've known you since fifth grade. Oh, introduced him to her band. You know a lot about music? Yeah. Why doesn't this come before? We didn't really have them before. It seems like you're trying way too hard to be Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I don't even like Flea. Yeah, what's your name? Bug? What's up with you and Sam? You like her, like her. Have you kissed her yet? I wouldn't even know what to do. Just start by gently moving a strand of hair from her face. <laughs> you are a You guys are a band. You have to kill me. To realize when it's time to step aside. Going up against Glory Dogs would be like Zach Efron to be Little Wayne. We're toast. They got one big chance. The winner gets actual record deal. We need to take all this psychotic energy and turn it into something new to go from garage band losers. He's a paper boy and he's making them bills. He got these diamonds all up in his grills. It's embarrassing. Two band slamming heroes. And we're gonna do this. Oh yeah. Who's gonna sing? Always do the thing that scares you. From Summit Entertainment and Walden Media. High School Musicals, Vanessa Hutchins. From Allie and AJ, Ali Chalka, Lisa Kudrow. <laughs> and introducing Galen Connell. Life has a funny way of putting you. Right where you need to be. Thank you very much. You better. Thank you.